here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's guest is the best-selling author of Lily and the Octopus, a Washington Post notable book of 2016, as well as the editor named by NPR and Esquire magazine as one of the best books of 2019. Both are in development as feature films. His new novel, The Gunkle, arrives May 25th of this year. His fiction has been published in 20 languages and he lives in Palm Springs with his partner, the writer Byron Lane. It's my pleasure to welcome Stephen Rowley. Today's guest is someone who's incredibly, incredibly special to me. I read his first novel, Lily and the Octopus, many years ago, and I made the mistake of reading this novel while on a 18-hour flight to Johannesburg, and my dachshund had just passed away about a month before, and I read this novel on the flight, and I was ugly crying to the point that a stewardess had to come over and ask me if I was okay. Don't worry, guys, it ended well. I got some extra wine, which which is always a good thing on a flight. And once I landed in South Africa, I tweeted Stephen to say how much his book had meant to me and how beautiful I found it. And this was this big fangirl moment. This was before I published my first novel and he replied to my tweet and I was like running around showing everyone this tweet that this author had replied to me. So Stephen, welcome. That was a very long introduction, but welcome to the show. Thank you. And we're here to talk about comedy of all things. It made you plain sob. Well, this is the thing about you that fascinates me. So you have gotten a reputation among your readers, among bookstagrammers, et cetera, et cetera, about writing these major tearjerkers. And yes, you do, because in every one of the novels of yours that I've read, so um, I read Lillian the Octopus, then the editor, and I've been extremely fortunate to read an advanced reader copy of The Gunkle 
cool. You're one of the first to get a chance to to read it. And you know how nerve wracking it can be when a new book first starts to make its way into the world and you're not sure how people are going to react. And guys, definitely pre-order this book. It is absolutely amazing. And, you know, when I started reading it, I started sending Stephen screenshots of my favorite quotes. <laughs> and, you know, I'd send it to him and I'd be like, oh my God, this had me killing myself laughing. And then I did it. And after about the 20th time in the space of five pages, I stopped messaging Stephen because I was like, oh God, it must be annoying for him to hear how bloody brilliant he is and then I finished the book so I went quiet and I finished the book and when I messaged him to say this book was amazing he was like oh thank goodness because when you went quiet I thought you stopped enjoying it (laughs) it's true and spoiler alert for a writer you could never tell them how much you enjoy their work too much but I you know this is one of the things that's sort of interesting in writing comedy in a novel format is that the lag time, because of how long it takes to write a novel and then how slow the cogs of the publishing machine sometimes turn, that you know I can sit there at my desk one day and write a joke that I can't wait to share with everybody, just know it, you know, snickering away, knowing how funny it's gonna be, and then realizing it maybe three years before anybody reads it. And you have to wonder like, will it still be funny then? Particularly like, these are some dark times. Like, what's the world going to be like in three years? Will the same thing still be funny? Like, <laughs> there's a lot to worry about. That is difficult because, I mean, you're very active on social media. So you're active on Facebook and you're active on Instagram and you're active on Twitter and you reply to your readers. And that's the great thing. You make some joke on, you make a tweet joke and immediately people retweet it and they reply to you. So you instantly know if it landed and if it didn't, you have time to quickly delete it. Sometimes they fall flat, but you know, if it's on Twitter, those are the freebies. I'm not charging you for those. (laughs) So if they fall flat, they fall flat, you know, like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so let's talk about that lag time. How do you manage to put these jokes out there knowing that, you know, three years may pass and the world changes a lot and people's perceptions of what's funny and not changed according to kind of what's politically correct or not at the time. I know that things that I killed myself laughing at five years ago now, I'd hear it and I'd be absolutely horrified. So what is your approach to doing that? Yeah, it's twofold that problem right now because, you know, in times like COVID and and the, the world is changing and there's political developments in America every day that seem frightening. And, and so like the world is, we don't know exactly what the world's going to look like in three years. Conversely, the world is also getting better and better. You know, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, and we are fortunately removing some of the things that were sort of offensively funny. Um, and I think, I think you know, obviously that's a good thing, but the world changes. And so when you are creating comedy or writing humor, the way that I think is sort of the safest way around that, because, you know, writers right now, that's the biggest thing I'm, I'm struggling with. What, what do I want to say about the world in, in three years, say, when my next book after the gunkel will come out, you know, and it's hard to, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to know. But for me, like I really grew up loving things that were rooted in in character. And so I think that's, there's sort of a safe spot there. If you create a character that's so sort of indelible and so specific, and then find the humor within that character that can help sort of ground it and make it feel a little more timeless. You know, in the gunkel, that character has a, you know, sort of, there's a lot of humor from his personality and from his his upbringing and stuff. So so there are things about the you know the the cultural references where we might find humor. I try not to make current, you know. So but something about the 80s could be a fun thing to reference. So I try not to to write anything that's too topical, particularly for novel writing. It's not just wanting to get it across the finish line when the book is released. You also have, hope that book has a long shelf life. So you want people to still be laughing in in five years, ten years, thirty years. You know, who who knows, whatever the life of a novel can be. So that moves us on to another question that I had. And that's what I said earlier about everyone perceives you to be this kind of tearjerker writer. And, you know, The Gunkle is a book that's very much about grief. 
And Lily and Octopus was, again, very, very much about grief. Mm -hmm. It's different kinds of grief. But really, when you come right down to it, grief is grief. And so, you know, how do you balance humor with these other kinds of emotions? Like, what is so funny about grief? How can you write this novel that is so hilariously funny, but deal with something so heavy? Yeah, I think it's it's just inherently part of my personality. Um, it's how I was raised. It was the pop culture and the art that I was introduced to growing up. You know, my mom uh, had me watch a lot of the movies of James L. Brooks. So Terms of Endearment, you know, was something I watched even as a kid, like, you know, 12, 13 years old or something. And watching what is, you know, ostensibly a very sad, tragic film, but it's so funny. And I was confused by it at the time, but now, you know, as an adult, you know, you do come to realize sometimes that life is funny. You know, there are dark moments when maybe you don't want to realize that, but it is, and humor is is such a coping mechanism. It's such a survival tool. So I, you know, that's two, it's two sides of the same coin for me. And I always try to write like that as well because i i'm always looking for a moment even when even in my darkest moments i am looking for the absurdity in it of the human condition of, of of the way we're programmed to react and if there's not something funny that i can use as a tool to make it feel a little more universal too because sometimes my grief is very specific to a relationship that i had or 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 something that's happening in my life but I'm always looking for the ways to sort of open it up. And humor is one of those ways that I think it can help broaden what I'm feeling and bring others into the into the fold and take them on the journey with me. Yeah, that definitely came came through in Lillian the Octopus and the Gunkle. I don't think anybody who's ever lost a pet or who's had this amazing relationship with this animal who, you know, they supposedly saved, but actually turned out the animal saved them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to have that kind of relationship and then have the loss of that. And wow, you you handled that so poignantly, but there were also really laugh out loud moments in that. But I feel like your comedy is just getting better and better because the gunkle was hilarious. Do you want to just tell everybody the premise of it just so that they can kind of understand the context? Sure, of course. For anyone who doesn't know, a gunkle is sort of our sort of modern slang term for a gay uncle. And I've always been obsessed with the anti-mame story. First, Patrick Dennis's novel, which was turned into a Broadway show with Rosalind Russell, and then a movie also starring Russell, and then a stage musical with Andrew Lansbury, and then a movie musical with a very miscast Lucille Ball. But, you know, it's had such a, an evolution over time. But what interested me was a couple things. One, I don't have kids. And I always wonder what that means as an artist, not to have what is arguably one of life's great emotional experiences in my toolkit. And then secondly, is the fact that a lot of these books like Anti-Mame or movies or stage shows were written at the time in sort of mid-century, mid-20th century. These were characters that to me would have very clearly been gay men. Mame would have very obviously been a gay man, except that you couldn't openly write about a gay, you know, sort of hero at that time. Dennis himself, who wrote the novel, was closeted. He was married and had his own kids, but later then had an active life in the the Greenwich Village gay scene in the 70s. And so, you know, I sort of wanted to to write a sort of a bookend to, to Mame and see those sort of seven decades of progress in between and now be able to tell the story, which maybe was how Dennis imagined it, you know, that character to begin with, but had to write it under the guise of, of her being a woman. So it was an interesting project to tackle in this time. Right. And this was the first novel that you wrote in the third person. And it was third person close. Your other novels were in the first person. Mm-hmm. So can I first just say how I am always so daunted by writing an entire novel from one character's perspective. I've never done it before. My first novel was two different characters. My second novel was three different characters. And so to carry an entire novel on the back of one character to me is so terrifying because that character has got to be so compelling. They Mm -hmm. have to be like just something that the reader wants to be immersed with and, and that'll carry them through the entire story. And you create the most most amazing characters. You create these kinds of characters that we want to spend an entire novel with and whose voice we love. And, you know, first person is so much easier in my mind to create this very distinctive voice because in the first person, it is that character 
speaking. So can I ask why did you deviate from the first person for this novel when I feel like first person would have been brilliant for the character? So let me ask that first. And then could you give the listeners a kind of description, an explanation of the difference between just general third person and third person close? Sure. So so as you mentioned, Lily and the Octopus and the editor, my first two novels were written in first person. We are inside the minds of the, the narrators of the main characters, and you are privy to every thought, every fleeting parts of their imagination, you you get it all. And so I, I have to laugh because you say I'm good at creating characters that you love to spend time with. But believe me, if you check out, you know, my Goodreads reviews or or on Amazon, you'll find people who say like, oh, I can't believe I had to listen to this person is so whiny. Just get over yourself. So <laughs> it's not always for everyone. In choosing to write the Gunkle in the third person, although as you say, it's third person close. So it sticks to Patrick O'Hara, who's the, the name of the main character, named, named in honor of Patrick. Patrick Dennis, who wrote Auntie May. But, you know, it sticks to his, you know, as opposed to your books where you talk about, you know, we have three characters or you have third person omnipotent where it's almost like a voice of God kind of narration who can go in and out of anyone's perspective and anyone's mind and know everything that's happening globally, even though your character, your focus on the time may not know that. I stuck close to Patrick. You know, I think I just wanted to give myself a challenge in writing in a new way and trying to hone my comedy by not falling back on the tools that I had become accustomed to. I didn't ever want to get lazy or complacent with what I'm trying to do. Now, it wasn't the biggest leap, you know, as you're saying, as, as you say, you know, I could have gone third person omnipotent or one of these other styles, but still it was enough of a leap for me that had to focus more on making the comedy instead of very inward, instead of very internal, the way you are when you're inside someone's mind. You know, this comedy had to be more external. It was a little bit more like a movie. It was a little bit more like having to create laughs through action and dialogue because you're not necessarily privy to every thought um, that runs through the character's head. I love that you're comparing it to a movie because it felt so cinematic to me. And that's obviously something you went for. And I think both of your books have been optioned for films, your first two (laughs) books. And for those of you listening, you know, just because a novel gets optioned doesn't mean it gets made into a film. There's all kinds of things that obstacles along the way, and maybe the right actor doesn't attach to the project or they do. And then the timing means they fall out. So I am desperately hoping to see Lillian the Octopus and the editor on screen. And I have absolutely no doubt if it hasn't already happened yet that the Gunkle as well will be optioned for screen because I think it'll make the most amazing, amazing movie. I know if it has been, you probably can't tell us yet. (laughs) I will. No, I don't mind telling you uh, that it has not been optioned, uh, the Gunkle yet. But but it's very interesting. You know, novel writing is such a solitary occupation and it's such a singular voice that you're getting and yes we have an editor and a copy editor and so to help polish that but the voice itself has to be there and it has to be provided by the novelist where filmmaking it's such a collaboration right it's such a recipe from all kinds of people adding ingredients and and so you have a writer who can craft a joke but you can have a director lead an actor through telling it and it gets refined and there's some immediate feedback on a set so it might get refined even further and then a test screening might refine it after that so you know it's such a such a different process and it's nice that the the first two books have been optioned and yes they're they're snaking their way through the through the production process and it doesn't always happen but i my fingers are crossed that we're we're making some progress towards both of those films getting into production but the interesting thing with the gunkle is that i had the i had a few offers and the the fact that the first two were optioned and that i have had a chance to work on them in various capacities gave me the confidence to say no if i didn't feel like it was the right voice or the right situation to to partner with so i'm kind of holding out for something special and maybe i'll be left alone on the dance floor but at the same time as as I grow more confident in my comedic voice, I don't just want to hand it over to anyone. And I almost feel like you would want to have 
that gay influence on the movie as well because you know there's there's you as as a gay writer and and this is one of the other things I love about your work Stephen is how you write this gay perspective and it's not about the trauma of being gay it's not about coming out and the angst of being gay it's just about being gay and the kind of things that a gay man might experience in the world on a day-to-day basis you know so it's this very matter of fact being gay representation, which is wonderful. And I'm sure that when it comes to, you know, this kind of film, you wouldn't want that watered down in any way, but you also wouldn't want it, you wouldn't want it too campy almost. Yeah, I yeah, exactly. I w- will write some very sharp jokes, I think, but and I love camp. I absolutely love camp as an as an audience member, it's something to consume, but it's not what I write. Yeah, I I do, you know, people will say to me like, uh, oh, I love I love your books because they're, they're not really gay books. I'm not like, but, but they are to me because they're written by me, an openly gay man, and my pop cultural references, my sense of humor, my empathy, my worldview, my politics, everything that goes in them, it's all informed by my being a gay man. So, you know, maybe they're thinking, oh, they're not, they don't have a lot of explicit sex or something, because I would just sit there and laugh. talk about comedy. I would just sit there and laugh if I were writing uh, hardcore <laughs> <laughs> romantic scenes. I can't even, I can't even say it. Woo, sex scenes. I think sex scenes, I think, are the hardest things to write. I have newfound respect for romance writers because I think I tried to kind of tackle my first erotic scene it wasn't even a sex scene there were no penises and things out (laughs) but but it was cringeworthy and I was like oh my god what do we call this and where do we put the hands here and you know romance writers make it seem so easy but at the same time I feel like your books are it's very clearly books written by gay men about gay characters, and they are very gay. So, you know, if you want to write these explicit sex scenes, I feel like you should. But I mean, obviously, it's not something that, you know, you you want to do. Like you say, it's cringeworthy sometimes. Yeah, although I could, I mean, there's a way to approach it, right? Sex is funny. Sex can be very funny, um, you know, and I don't even mean that in a like, laugh at it. I just mean, you know, as a participant in it sometimes, like there are absurd moments uh, that can be found certainly. So you know, there's there's absolutely a way to find find if I can find humor and grief, I can certainly find humor and sex. But yeah, I think uh, you know it's that that dichotomy that's a little that, that makes it more human. You know, and I I think my books are very accessible by anyone. That even though I consider them them gay books, they're very much about fraught human relationships, and um, you know anybody can access those. Yeah. And I mean, I love that, you know, you have middle-aged straight women across the US who are reading these books and might otherwise not have access to these kinds of stories because they might say, oh, it's a gay book. I'm not going to pick it up. Whereas it's a book about these universal experiences. And I mean, this is the thing about reading literary fiction. It makes us better human beings because we process these experiences that are outside our own experience. And it makes us go, oh my God, we are actually really all the same. Grief is the same whether you're straight or gay and relationships are difficult whether you're straight or gay, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, you talk about your Goodreads reviews. I've seen a lot of your Goodreads reviews as well. I don't look at them anymore. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I I also don't anymore, but I remember somebody saying that, you know, it opened their perspective on things and it broadened their horizons. And that must be, you know, incredibly gratifying as well, because I mean, that's not what you set out to do, but if you can do that as a side thing to what you're trying to do, then, then that's definitely a positive as well. Yeah. Well, one good thing about this past 12 months is that it's opened up even in publishing, which was already a more diverse industry than others, but it's opened um, these conversations about representation, about who the gatekeepers are right now. Are they letting the right kind of writers, the right you know, representation in through the types of writers, through the types of stories? Are we casting as wide a net as possible to make sure that our stories are as inclusive as they possibly can be? And that is one of the things I love about novels the most is, I mean, they're just food for empathy. It just it just feeds that part of you. And the, the more types of stories you can read, the more different writers who come from other cultures and types of families and backgrounds. It's just, it makes you more complete as a human being to be able to consume that, find the connection. Again, for me, that's where humor comes in. Find where 
the the similarities are and and um you know open have your heart open that much more we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten i cannot believe it one of the tricky things about my kids being in french immersion school and not having french as a language myself is i'm honestly worried about how i'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger they're young now but i see it coming we are honestly so lucky though to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends so i know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be for me as a as a white south african straight woman you know there was there were moments in your book that just struck such a chord because as south africans we have kind of this very dark sense of humor um i think people who've gone through really difficult times develop this coping mechanism way more than than other people do. And, and South Africans, we almost have a British sense of humor, which is very different, different to the American sense of humor. But there were so many times that things that you said, I was like, oh my God, I could picture some white straight South African dude saying this in this exact context, because, you know, th those coping mechanisms are the same. And the way we deal with these things align. And this is, you know, where we all come together in this yeah. shared experience. So trauma is a big part of it, right? You know, and I, I guess I, I have enough British heritage in me that I that some of that sort of stiff upper lipness uh, has obviously come through. But you know, you talk about South Africa, particularly like you know the the trauma of of going through apartheid and all those changes. You know, for me, I, I can. This is going to be terrible, but you know, I was so I was 13, 14, maybe when we all watched the Challenger space shuttle explode in in science classrooms across the country, and and I grew up in the state of Maine, which was right across the border from New Hampshire, where Krista McAuliffe, the first teacher in space, was from. You know, we felt like she was very close to us. That was 
traumatic to experience. And I remember, this is the awful part, being obsessed with challenger jokes after that. But, you know, 14-year-old me didn't know how to process what I had seen live on television without the without the sort of ability to to exhale to laugh in that way to let out some of that horror through laughter and um it's something you know i don't necessarily think john jokes are funny today but i do get the inclination to deal with grief through humor yeah and and not just grief just kind of disbelief and not knowing what's going on in the world i mean we've mm-hmm. seen things recently playing out in the us that nobody ever thought would happen in in their lifetimes it's been absolutely crazy but something that immediately cheers me up is to see the jokes that come online mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. immediately the memes etc cetera, etc cetera. and this is ways of people processing this despair with, you know, and it's not just grief. It's, it's a sense of despair. It's a sense of helplessness. Um, and, and this is how people process it by, by laughing about it. Yeah. But that's one way that something like Twitter, an outlet like Twitter helps over novel writing is it is good to have that released now in the present as it's happening, instead of waiting three years for novels to be written <laughs> about yeah. it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about character. How do you create humor that is authentic to whoever your character is? Um, And also, what happens when you have this really great joke, but you have nowhere to put it? So I've had jokes that I have worked probably months on, uh, and you have it at the part of the novel, and then your editor just with one foul swoop unceremoniously yanks it out and you were like oh my god you know how long I finessed that joke for Uh, and you kind of want to find somewhere else for it and just shove it in somewhere or move it to some other piece of work so so how do you approach that yeah this is where editors are annoyingly right some of the time because if you have overly worked something or overly crafted or it didn't work here but I'm going to shoehorn it in over there that's usually when that's usually a sign that it doesn't work. And we probably know that you and I deep down, but we're not ready to call time of death on that joke. And we're as an editor with that red pen could just be like, out, out <laughs> they're going to be ruthless that way. But, <laughs> uh, but oftentimes they're right. And sometimes, sometimes that's its own grieving process uh, yeah. for the joke. But I always pull those out and I'll put them in a file and think, you know, maybe they'll fit something else. But we know when writing that it should, that the humor should feel a little more effortless, particularly when it comes from character. It should stamp, it should flow from the the personality quirks and traits of, of that person. And so you can't always go, you know, like I keep a collection of, of jokes that I've thought of or come up with or heard or thought I could tweak or, but they usually stay in the file because ultimately, while I have intention to use them, it's what comes naturally from from that character. And and I don't know that character's voice necessarily when I first sit down to start working on a novel. That's something like you get to know your character over time. I've cheated now three times because I think each of my main characters have been a, a side of myself. They're not that far afield. My work in progress now, my next challenge for myself will be really uh, creating a character that, that that's very far afield from me and who I am. So that, that's the next challenge for me. But right now, the, these three characters are all sort of different sides of me, or they were me at different points in my life. So it's okay. You know, it's, it's easier to access that and what what they would find funny and what they would do that is funny. And and you say, you know, you've cheated, but I mean, I I would say that all debut novels, well, not all, but most debut novels are some, the author is very, very much sunken into those characters mm-hmm. because these are mm-hmm. these are stories that have sat with us for a long time and, and we wanted to express them. And in every book I write, I put myself into one of the characters. It's generally the one that my re- readers, when I speak to a book club, it's generally the character who they all go, oh, my God, I hated this character. <laughs> <laughs> been there. I have been there. Um and, and if we have to defend ourselves to our readers and go, this is not the most annoying character, this is actually a great character, well, then so be it. Uh, so for the listeners out there, if you're planning to publish, prepare to spend a lot of time defending yourself um, against, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> against readers. It's yeah. Right. And last question is, 
how do you write a joke that works even if your reader or your audiobook narrator may deliver it differently than you have in your head? You know, how is it different? What's different about written comedy compared to performed comedy? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's interesting. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I hear my words so specifically in my head. And there's all sorts of things that can go into a joke. Timing, whether or not you take a beat, whether or not an inflection goes up as opposed to down. Um, there's all sorts of things that you can do in performance that makes something funny. But how do you convey that on the page so that you get your reader to read it as similarly as you heard it in your head or experience it so that it's as funny to them as it was to you? That's hard. That's hard. I, I have a wonderful audiobook narrator, um, the actor Michael Yuri, who has done both of my audiobooks so far. But I have a difficult time listening to them. And he's a genius. He's an absolute genius. And the people who listen to them tell me how much they love him and how much he sounds like me. But I hear it. And even if there's just a slight difference in interpretation, and there should be because he's an actor and it's his job to interpret the material and make it funny for him and what he thinks the audience wants. It's hard. If he goes up at the end of a sentence and in my head I go down, I, it's wrong. And I'm like, I can't listen to this. <laughs> and it's it's very difficult. But I think I like wordplay. I like puns. I like, you know, sort of all this stuff. But to me, the most successful comedy in literature is that, you know, as we've talked about, is inherent to the character. So even if the delivery changes a little bit, there's something that's so attached to the heart of the person you're reading about that connects. But, you know, I haven't figured out the perfect answer to this, except that I'm just going to have to narrate all my own books from now on <laughs> so and star in each movie or what, you know, whatever, God forbid. But, you know, there's there's no way around that. I think there's, there's a level of trust um, that you place in your readers too, uh, particularly if they're return readers, because there's something that they responded to about your voice. And if they're coming back to that, that, uh, that you, you can trust them a little bit more. So with, e with each book I, I write, I'm not, I, I don't feel so obsessively uh, controlling about it. I, I put it out in the world and people will, will receive it as they may. But, but this is something I love too, because here, here's like you and I have become friends and it's because you love Lily and the Octopus first. And now I've written, I've read, you know, your books and it's a truly lovely. I think the one thing that is a, there's a surprise and a joy for me is if I've learned that if I love a writer's work, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes I could have a lovely friendship with that writer. And I tell readers that if you, if you respond to my books and chances are we're going to get along in real life as well. And that's, that's a really lovely um, connection. Uh, abso absolutely. Although I, I mean, I have met some writers whose works I loved who, you know, I was, who? I shouldn't, no, I'm not telling <laughs> who I should not have met because it actually just it was a terrible experience and then you go oh my god like, don't, don't yeah, meet your but, heroes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. don't meet but your I'm, heroes I'm perfectly lovely yes, no you are absolutely lovely <laughs> okay, I have my days but I think I'm yeah you're lucky that I don't live near you because I'd probably be camping out at your house the whole oh, time we've been recording this in person uh and <laughs> even if we had to have masks on you know there would be a little hole there just for the straw from our cocktail <laughs> oh my god yes although I'm having a dry January so I'm a bit more cranky than I usually am I, I was having a dry January and then we had an armed insurrection in this <laughs> that went out the window I, I saw your your Facebook post was um, something about dry January but this only counts until noon <laughs> yeah it's true I mean like if the world if the world is going to be such that it is that you know maybe dry February maybe things will be a little calmer down here uh and uh and, and you know February is a shorter month anyway maybe I'll have more success I actually should have thought of that I should have done dry February something you said earlier <laughs> and this is true and this is something for the listeners to keep in mind is that once you know while you're crafting the work it's yours and you own it mm -hmm. and you understand what you mean by it and, and all the rest of it and as soon as it goes out into the world it is completely open to interpretation. So I think one of the worst reviews I ever saw of my work was on If You Want to Make God Laugh. And there is a child in that who is taken away from its mother. And then another woman wants to adopt this child. And there's kind of a fight between the biological mother and the woman who takes the child. And someone wrote this one star review and said how upset they were because they were adopted. And that was the best thing that could have happened to them. And yet the book that I wrote says that children should be with their biological 
biological mothers. And it was this whole thing. And it really freaked me out to the point that I was even going to reply to them and apologize. And then I realized that people filter their understanding of the world and their perceptions through this lens of all the heartbreak and trauma that they've had in their lives. And the way we intend something may not be the way they hear it or the way they understand it based on their outlook of the world, et cetera, et cetera. So that is always something that you are going to experience and you're going to send your work out to people who don't get it, whether it's editors or agents or whatever. It doesn't mean the work's not good. It just means that that person is not, you know, your target audience. So yeah, so not every book mind. is for every person and, and you can't control how somebody reads your book. You know, in a perfect world, I would like someone to sit down in a quiet room and experience one of my books in in large chunks at a time and not pick it up and down every three minutes maybe or put it down in the middle of a chapter because I'm building a rhythm when, you know, comedically, dramatically, whatever it may be, an arc, I'm trying to get something across and I'm, I'm, you know, very conscious as a writer of building a rhythm, but I can't control that you can read the book at that same rhythm, you know, and then conversely, when people say, I devoured your book in an afternoon and I'm like, you read it in one, it took me two years to write and you read it in one day. Are you out of your mind? So I'll get, I'll get mad, you know. Yeah, I, I finished in an hour. When's the next one? It's like, yeah. I spent three years of my life on this book. Why did you, yeah. you know, why didn't you savor it? Taste um, yourselves. Have a, have, have a chip, a cookie, a bonbon, something. Have, have you ever seen somebody out in the wild reading your book, Stephen, or no? No, I don't think I have. Although I did see someone like crying on an airplane once or a train or something. And I was like, hmm? like, is that, could that... Could that be uh, <laughs> someone? You never know. I have gotten recognized a couple times in public. And that's always very gratifying because I do think, here's a secret. I think being an author is the perfect amount of celebrity, if you will, in that I can walk into a bookstore or in normal times, I can walk into a bookstore and, and people can be very happy to see me and I can walk out of a bookstore and have total anonymity. And I love that because it allows me to observe and to listen and to eavesdrop. You know, writing is a, what's what's hard about writing right now in a COVID world is it's such an input output business. And it's very hard to do the input right now when we're all sheltering at home and just watching Netflix or whatnot. I, I count on usually being out in the world and observing people. And that's it's much harder to do right now. And even when you are, they're wearing masks or they're not engaging with people in the same way and we're keeping our distances so it's hard to observe and not the most conducive atmosphere to creativity either when you kind of balled up in the fetal position <laughs> yeah Super. well yeah it's true you know it's it's hard yeah when the world feels like a very lonely place it's hard to you know, writing is a sort of an act of connection sometimes. And, and when the world feels very lonely, that's hard to do. It's also hard to do when you're at rage 11 all the time, which is, you know, unfortunately the way the world has been this, this past year. Um, it's very hard to create or to want to sit down and create when, when the world feels out of control. To finish off the podcast, I'm going to ask Stephen just to share his experience of publishing Lillian the Octopus because it was hugely inspiring for me because Stephen took a very circuitous route in that, you know, he almost self-published the novel. Could you just tell us briefly how your experience came to be of publishing that novel? Yeah, it is, you know, it's a it was a very unique story and a very interesting route to publication in that um, Lily was a dog that I had a dachshund, for those who aren't familiar with the story. In, in real life, she had a, a brain tumor, so this lump on her head. When I sat down to write about the loss um, after she had died, I was writing from a place of just wanting to understand what I had been through, what that relationship, what that friendship had meant to me. And in doing that, I almost immediately realized what I was really writing about was connection and, and attachment and how difficult it can be to let go. And so, bing, somewhere along the line, an octopus entered my head. There was something about having a tentacular metaphor for this attachment that, that made sense to me. So it became a story about a man who wakes up and finds a small octopus has attached itself to his dog's head. And the, there's something about the absurdity of that, again, approaching it through humor that allowed me to really take a deep dive and examine what I wanted to do with this work. But granted, 
that's a little weird. So, uh, you know, if you want to hear absolute silence on the other end of a telephone line, call New York publishing agents and say, do you want to read my book about a dog with an octopus stuck to its head? You won't get past reception. <laughs> and certainly, you know, when I sent the book around, I, you know, I wasn't making my way out of the slush pile. So, you know, one, one lesson from that that I learned was it, it's just as important not only to be clear about uh, when we're writing something, but we have to be clear about how to talk about what we have written. We have to be clear about how to describe our work to others. Otherwise, it's it's going to be very difficult to open doors because the book it really isn't about a dog with an octopus on its head. It's about how difficult, you know, how we react to obstacles in our life and somehow, sometimes how they can either be entirely made up or, or you know, inventions of our own or, or greatly exaggerated. And there usually are ways around them. So anyway, I was so tired of waiting for other people to um, respond to me that I figured, you know what, I'm proud of this as a piece of writing, but, but it is weird. Maybe it's not everyone one's cup of tea. And so I just having been proud of writing it, I decided to maybe self-publishing was the avenue for me. And I was so far down that road that I had hired like a graphic designer friend to do a cover, someone to do the ebook layout and the file and um, boring printers if I wanted to do a small run and all, sort of all the things you do, registering for an ISBN number, all the things you do on your own when you're going to self-publish. And um, rightfully, my partner, my now fiance, who was encouraging me through this process, said, you know what, you might want to hire an editor because let's let's just, if you're going to put it out there, let's make sure it's as polished as possible. And, and in doing that, I hired a, a freelance editor who connected me with a friend at Simon & Schuster and said, you know, I think I think I know who might be interested in this. And, and she sort of got the manuscript in through the, through the back door. And that was on a Friday. And Monday, I woke up to my phone ringing because the time difference between New York and Los Angeles. And, and that was with interest for, for the book. It was, it was crazy. After, after a year of trying to get anyone to return my phone call, it happened like, like that. And then, and then you had to go and find an agent afterwards for a book yeah. you'd already sold, which never it, happened. Yeah, but pro tip for any aspiring writers listening, like if you if you have an offer for publication, you can have your pick of agents. You know, everybody who wouldn't return my call before was suddenly like, oh yeah, oh oh the octopus book. Yeah, I, I think I remember something about that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. I cannot wait for the gunkle to come out, and I can't wait to see the amazing success you are going to have. It for any of the listeners who are interested in humor and not just humor. Just, just kind of the the poignancy and all of it. Pre-order this book, but if you haven't yet read Stephen's first two books, Lily and the Octopus and the Editor, go back and read that to prepare yourself for for when the gunkle. You can comes read out. them each in one day. I'll check off two days as you wait for the gunkle to come in May. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so then you can say, "When's your next book?" And then it's not that luck. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off.
That's carlawaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.